have radio voice, body of, radio voice, body of, radio voice. B- 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 Welcome to another episode of The Limbaugh, a show about the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Who's received it, who should receive it, and maybe a couple who shouldn't. My name is Brian Tuft. I'm Christine Sear. And I'm Clay Russell. Well, I really went radio voice on that, didn't I? It was very Peter Jennings in the 90s. And I'm Clay Russell. We did just watch Good Night and Good Luck recently. Yes, yes we did. Maybe that's it. Shout out to Good Night and Good Luck, underrated film. Mm-hmm. I slept on it in 2005, but now I'm now I'm a big fan. Maybe the only good movie George Clooney has ever directed. I don't say He's it. Very good in it. Right. I have to, I'm not even the biggest Clooney fan. I'm not mm-hmm. much of a Clooneyac, but um, he's very good in it. A Clooney tune, if you mm-hmm. will. Well, let's keep up our world news tonight aura, <laughs> guys. Yesterday, President Biden was in the news because a fifth lot of top secret documents were discovered at his private residence. And earlier today, vice, former Vice President Michael Pence, former, I want to make sure that I emphasize that. I don't want you to think that I was involved in the January 6th insurrection. Uh, he definitely is no longer the VP, was also implicated in having some top secret docs at him and mother's house. What do we think is going on? What, what, do we think the... Uh, the top secret docs are that uh, salacious that we got to bring them home. So I'm willing. Here's my thought. I think when you have not unfettered, but close to unfettered access to top secret documents, like you might get slightly numb to their status as top secret documents. And there might just be a little bit of benign, you know, like sloppiness with the documents. I feel like at least so far what I'm hearing from the, I mean, the Pence thing is brand new as we record. Um, and over the last like week or so with the Biden stuff, I think what makes it different to the Trump thing is like, oh, OK, here you go. Like they just sort of immediately rectify. Now, we'll get to the Trump okay. thing. There's a reason I didn't bring him up yet. I promise. But I just to me, when I heard this was happening, I thought it was like, have you ever been reading a great magazine in a waiting room at a doctor's office and then they call you into the exam room and you're not done? I don't know about you, but like sometimes I'll slip that issue of, you know, Men's Health magazine into my purse because I want to find out, you know, Bradley Cooper's 11th secret. You know, I didn't make it that far. Okay, Um, I've never done that. And I feel like that warrants (laughs) further discussion. Have Christine, have you ever stolen a magazine at a doctor's office? No, I think Brian's kind of telling on himself here. (laughs) I feel like he's the type of guy that would keep top secret documents and just not tell anyone. I mean, that's what I was getting at is like, to me, if I was reading a top secret document and somebody was like, dinner is being served at the residence, I would put the top secret documents into my purse and I'd bring them right upstairs. Just big picture. Do an audit, folks. Yeah. If you're going to intentionally steal, intentionally steal, but like do an audit. And I know that this is all after the fact, after Trump. And I imagine if... Mar-a-Lago was never raided by the feds that this would have been a very small news story in the sidebar of a newspaper. But do an audit. Make sure you have everything organized. You have two months from the election to your inauguration of the next president. Clean up. It's not just that. I mean, according to the um, New York Times podcast, The Daily, uh, their episode that uh, went out today as we record this said that there were documents in Biden's personal residence dating back to his time in the Senate. So, I mean, this is not just like, oh, you know, I have some paperwork from early 2017 that I forgot to turn back in because I never made it back to the White House. I mean, this is systemic. It's systemic. And even if he didn't personally know that he still had the documents, someone in his office should have told him. And so when uh, Trump's residence was raided, he could have said, yes, occasionally we do screw up. I have been found to have a couple of these as well. I'm turning them in. It does sound like he's known about this for months. And uh, I think that we are pretty quick to criticize Democrats. And I'm going to do it again in this in this 
episode that this was an absolute softball that they completely just dropped. I agree. So, I mean, let's get into it. Uh, Christine, you already directly said it. I think the differences between this and the Trump thing is very stark because, as you said, as soon as Biden was alerted to it, uh, from what I've, uh, from my research, it looks like it happened on uh, the week of the midterm elections. And uh, they immediately contacted the DOJ and told them, hey, I had top secret documents at my office uh, at the Penn Center. You know, uh, I'm going to turn them over to the National Archive. And the idea that, you know, I mean, he easily could have just like thrown them in the fire. Like he could have he could have they never knew that they were there. It's not like there was an audit done uh, at the end of the Obama presidency and there was paperwork that they had noticed was missing. Um, so, I mean, to me, the transparency of it makes this completely different. Uh, the other thing is I feel like a lot of the media coverage is making it seem like Biden has bungled this. I mean, I think he definitely took a calculated risk in not telling the general public about it immediately. But I have to say, if I found out something that could create this deep of a false equivalency between me and the person who I've essentially organized an entire midterm election about being different from, I don't think that I would go public with that. And I think the idea that Biden did everything right so that there wasn't a peep about this publicly for 63 days, and in those 63 days had a successful midterm election, and then also had a runoff in Georgia, I mean, I don't want to be cynical, but I mean, like, that's political genius work compared to what Trump would have done. <laughs> You're not wrong. It's, <laughs> and yeah, you're right. This could be looked at both ways, but it's just the optics of it. And it's especially because there are many documents, most experts say too many documents that are classified in government. And there's a big difference between what may turn out to be a report on agriculture subsidies or something that that Mike Pence and Joe Biden had and what is alleged to be nuclear secrets with Trump. And you've got to be able to frame the narrative in that. I feel like this is, again, another screw up by the Democrats, like when the Mueller report came out and William Barr stepped up there and had the first word and the Democrats just stayed completely silent about the report and the Trump administration framed the argument in this as well. The facts are the facts, but you've got to frame the discussion. And Biden, again, bungled this opportunity to do that. That I agree with. Now, the Biden, Pence, Trump trifecta of taking our work home with us is one of the scandals dominating Washington, D.C. this week. The other one is a lot more fun and a lot more gay. For those of you who have been living under a rock, the incredible people in Whitestone, Douglaston, and part of Western Long Island sent a man named George Santos to the House of Representatives. And so far, it has been a shit show. <laughs> so uh, there was a part of me that was wondering if we should do a repeat of the medals of the week in the Don't Worry Darling discussion where we just hand it to Brian for him to freestyle over this with George Santos. But let's get into it, Brian. So most of his resume has been, uh, you know, discovered to have been fabricated as the kind journalistic word that I should use, but I mean, completely made up. I mean, just complete lies, just, I mean, fiction. It's the first time that a resume has been a work of fiction. It's con man shit. This is straight up con man mm -hmm. shit. And then just as I feel like that was about to teeter off, you know, the crowds of people or people, the crowds of reporters following him through the chambers of the House of Representatives was starting to peter off. What's the worst thing that a Republican for 2023 could be found to be? What is a drag queen, Alec? The man has been... <laughs> discovered to have been a, a very prolific and I, I would assume quite successful uh, drag queen or drag performer uh, in his homeland. And unfortunately, this is not 1977 where, you know, you could cross dress 
uh, to your heart's content, and people would just have to like whisper about it, uh, you know, at Le Diplomat. Now there's this little thing called the internet. And watching these videos has given me a sense of joy and a sense of unfiltered happiness that I have not felt since November 8th, 2016. I mean, it's just been top-notch stuff. Last night on Twitter, uh, a website that Elon Musk will have to pry from my dead hands, Representative Santos got into it with RuPaul's Drag Race icon and All-Stars Season 3 winner, Trixie Mattel, which was a back-and-forth, I mean, pretty nondescript. I mean, I've seen better Twitter fights between, you know, complete nobodies. But the best part of it has been watching the media cover it by surmising the situation as two drag performers got into an argument <laughs> on Twitter.com. And the idea that George Santos is now being addressed as drag performer, perfect. Um, also, the fact that he's just outright denying it's him, even though it's so obviously clearly him, is that's almost camp to me. He did say he was just having fun at a festival. Let him live his life. Like, it was very funny. That's why the I think the people who have these videos are like, actually, no, it wasn't just at a festival. Don't forget. It's very much, no, Ellen, that's actually not the truth. Like, <laughs> the, <laughs> suddenly every drag queen is like uh, Dakota Johnson. I'm like, oh, no, I have the receipts. I do. I want to touch on this topic and... If it's completely unrelated, I get it. But I, is there something to be said that the first openly gay Republican to be elected isn't comfortable with who he is? Mm. I mean, for a while, I really did think that he was not actually gay. I thought maybe it was just something that he had done as like a ploy to kind of make himself palatable to uh, middle of the line voters in that very conservative area. Um, was, you know, like a thing where it's like, I'm from South America, I'm gay, but I'm also a Republican. Because I feel like that was like a very big kind of post-Bush thing where it was like, oh, we have to expand the party. Um, we have to, you know, Republicanism is for everybody. It's not, it's for white people. But that's where I kind of thought it was. And then it had turned out that he was married to a woman. And I had to have a couple of uncomfortable conversations with um, heterosexual friends who meant well to explain, like, sometimes people who are queer marry women. Uh, sometimes it's a marriage of convenience, you know, if it's a 1960 sex comedy. Sometimes it's just, you know, they didn't know they were gay. But I did say that the idea that he had lied about all of these things, he said that his mother died in 9-11, and it turns out that I believe she was in uh, Brazil. Um, I said that people who scam publicly and lie are part of the LGBTQ community. That's just facts. Like, if you're a scammer, you're in the community. You can you can come to Stonewall. You can march in the parade. Um, but then it turned out that he actually was gay, which, you know, now I'm fascinated. Why was he married to that woman? What was going on? Is she the reason he's a millionaire? Like, there's just, there's so much here. Mm -hmm. You know, this isn't a movie. This is a limited series. Yeah, I'm I'm deeply fascinated in the entire story. And I do wonder, you're hearing about all the money being thrown around and secrecy and all that. I wonder if it's going to turn out that that was just one of his lies, that there wasn't actually any money there. He just scammed his way into a federal seat in the United States Congress. It's a hell of a story. I mean, it's just, it's interesting to watch this happen because I feel like we as a society are so obsessed right now with scam culture. And I know like, you know, there was a few years ago where New York Magazine dubbed it the summer of scam or like the Anna Delvey story broke and the uh, Uber story broke and the WeWork story broke. And it was all like dominoes kind of cascading. But like now for people who aren't very literate and weren't reading the coverage of those stories now they're being turned into prestige dramas and i think it's very much like true crime where it's kind of you know it's not as good as it used to be but like we're still getting these stories about these people who have told these outrageous lies uh to become successful and i think the idea that he decided like it's very clear like you know he was like other people are getting away with this i can do it it's just to see it happen and for him to be handling it so poorly, I will say, um, and to have done it at such a large scale is just fascinating. But I'm 
thrilled that, you know, it, if somebody was going to take this big of a risk and was going to uh, scam their way into a federal seat, that it was a gay person. That's the kind of representation I want to see. <laughs> That's progress. Yes. yes. When gay people get to commit crimes, that's equality. <laughs> Straight men have had the monopoly on federal crimes for too long. Yeah. There there also it's just so many different angles in terms of the present image of federal government also that it used to be okay, this guy is a, is a bad dude. Let's get him out of here. The Republican leadership would have done that and now with this and the Herschel Walker candidacy and all that, it just like, it doesn't matter right. anymore. It's very black and white. We want to be in power and we don't care who represents us as long as we have that vote. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's all about power. I will say, you know, I mean, we saw Senate Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy humiliate and debase himself over 15 votes to become Speaker of the House. The man has a four-seat majority. The idea of throwing the seat back into the electorate and risking uh, the fourth seat in your majority, which, I mean, let, this man has implicated every Republican in Long Island and even and a majority of Republicans in New York State. There's no way that they would win this seat. I mean, I'm not saying Kevin McCarthy is right for what he is doing, but I will say I completely understand. Mm -hmm. If I had worked this hard and had watched Paul Ryan and John Boehner be Speaker of the House before me, and I had to kiss the ass of Matt Gates <laughs> for 14 votes for me to finally get the gavel handed to me on the 15th vote, I would be like, George, come to work dressed in drag. I don't care. <laughs> as long as you show up on time when I need you to vote. Maybe there's something positive through all of this in that in the 90s and the first decade of the 2000s, everything was about, well, would you like to have a beer with this person? Are they relatable? Are they a fishing buddy? And now it's just, you know what? There's Democratic positions and there are Republican positions. Who cares about the candidate? Who cares what their background is? What are they standing on? You've got to look at those issues and you have to vote for which side you believe in. Yeah, it's pretty depressing. Mm -hmm. I will say I wouldn't trust him with, any, you know, like my bank account information, but I most certainly would have a vodka soda with George Santos. And that's the gay version of a beer. <laughs> <laughs> What's the gay version of fishing? Fishing? You know, I don't think that I'm at liberty to discuss the community secrets. Um, got if it. you don't got know, it. you don't know. No, it's, it's privileged information, I understand. Um, but speaking of problematic gay icons, when we're back, Clay is going to give us a middle <laughs> of, the, <laughs> of the episode for John Wayne. This is going to be a fun one. Oh, Lord. Profiles of influential Americans and people that have bettered American society in terms of image and, and their actions. But there are other figures out there that were as equally influential who I would say strongly argued at this point did a bad job and kind of set us on the wrong course. This episode's profile is on actor John Wayne, mm. who uh, there's going to be a lot to discuss in this profile of someone who was definitely a make America great again type of person. And I feel like he is a reoccurring character in American pop culture, which is someone who is the embodiment of an ideal, but whose actual life is completely made up. John Wayne is a person who uh, did not grow up on a ranch, did not, <gasps> did not serve in the military, <laughs> actually actively tried to get out of the military, and John Wayne isn't even his real name. So, let's break down John Wayne. He was born in 1907 in Iowa. 
You would think that's kind of rural. When he was nine, his family moved to California. His father was a pharmacist, not a rancher or a hitman or whatever you'd think John Wayne's father would be. He got a football scholarship to USC, but was not able to actually play in the games because he broke his collarbone while bodyboarding. (laughs) And while that is a totally sick injury, not necessarily something you would think of with John Wayne. At this point, he, as a favor for giving USC football tickets to movie producers, got a job as a prop boy and an extra, and started off as an extra and some minor parts in silent films. Uh, At that point, they decided to change his name to John Wayne, and his nickname is The Duke. Get this for a bit of parallel here. The reason his nickname is Duke was he was named after the family dog, a la Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones! (laughs) So Spielberg stole that from a person who went by the alias John Wayne. I love it. At this point, he has started to be in bigger and bigger movies, and his big breakout was working for director John Ford, who actually starred him as an unknown in the 1939 movie Stagecoach. At this point, I would put him as a Chris Pine type of figure, very Hollywood, very fresh-faced, was a romantic interest, all of that. And to remind you about the year 1939 is right before World War II broke out. And this is where everything starts to branch off. He uh, tried to get a deferment. His worry was that if he did serve in the military, that he would be too old when he got back and was worried about his looks. Even though that there were people like Clark Gable and the aforementioned Ted Williams, the baseball player who gave up prime years of their lives to to serve their country, John Wayne actively got out of that. And his non-participation in World War II would influence the rest of his life in that he was completely ashamed of him not participating in it. And as a result of that... He basically became the, uh, I guess, the hyper-masculine version of what an American is. He tried to overcompensate his cowardice with an image of someone who did not back down, uh, hated non-white people, was the man's man, hated gay people, all of that. Very old-fashioned, extremely conservative, and... There's going to be a phrase that I'm going to bring up here that I want to take a minute to outline here. And the phrase is white supremacy. I want to make a difference between the definition white supremacy and white terrorism. I think that people, when they do think of white supremacy, they think of Klan rallies and violence and things like that. Based on... His history, he was never a violent person, and so he absolutely had nothing to do with white terrorism. But he did embody white supremacy and that almost toxic masculinity Mm. of being completely insecure in his image and just really being this person who depicted falsely someone who served in the military and someone who made sure to save the white people from Native Americans in his films. He was very image conscious and never, ever went against type. He always would play the the hyper-masculine leader. He would never play in a supporting role or a character role or something like that. There was actually, later in his career, Kirk Douglas had starred in a film playing Vincent Van Gogh And John Wayne went up to Kirk Douglas at a party and said, quote, Christ, Kirk, how can you play a part like that? There are so goddamn few of us left. We've got to play strong, tough characters, not these weak queers. Uh, Okay. As a weak queer, I'm offended. (laughs) (laughs) And it just goes to show this guy wasn't an actor. He was someone who was just so insecure in his figure that... He uh, 
was completely scared of ever looking weak or ever looking like someone who had considerations for other people. And the American public, and again, I'm going to use the phrase, people who believed in white supremacy ate this up. He was their guy. I know that I'm drawing parallels to the Trump administration, and I think that that's intentional of these made-up characters who almost were playing a part in a way of how they depicted themselves in public. And that false made-up character that they were actually influence people to do real life things. Someone who was telling fake stories influenced reality. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Even his life was a fake story though. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) There wasn't anything that was actually genuine to this person. Mm. And even though that everyone in his same generation, not everyone, but the majority of people made that sacrifice, sacrificed their lives, and if not their lives, their health and their, 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 their careers as well. And he was not that person. He was the one who embodied this image that was completely fake and completely false. They made a point that when he spoke during the Vietnam War at USO tours, he was welcomed like a returning hero, and people went nuts for him. But when he would speak in World War II rallies, was booed off stage because his own generation knew that he was fake. He right. was a made-up story, essentially. So from there, he started in very repetitive movies that people went out and bought of the gunslinger, of the war hero, of that. And throughout this, I've been watching John Wayne movies trying to prepare for this piece to to get a sense of everything that was there. And I focused on the quote-unquote masterpieces that he made. The first one is what I mentioned, which is 1939 Stagecoach, which is kind of a proto chase action type of movie, but also very racist toward Native Americans, which I think in 1939 isn't that surprising. The uh, movie that's considered his masterpiece is the 1956 feature, The Searchers, in which John Wayne plays a returning Confederate soldier who uh, battles a, a tribe of Native Americans. And before I had watched the film, I had heard all of these stories about how influential this film is, Steven Spielberg says it's one of the greatest movies ever made. Scorsese said that. French New Wave director Jean-Luc Godard has cited this movie. And so I watched it thinking that I'd be blown over by this, of this this symbol of equality and everything with that. And it's very much a product of its time in that the movie doesn't necessarily have a story of a reformed character, meaning John Wayne, coming around to seeing that Native Americans aren't evil people. What the movie does is it depicts Native Americans as actual human beings and that John Wayne is still racist. And at the end, he has the opportunity to shoot a Native American girl in the face and he doesn't do it. And so that's considered a big step forward. And you think of the time that the movie was released, 1956 was absolutely still dead set in the white supremacy era. And just because it considers other cultures, it's now seen as this landmark and you just don't see it anymore. And I think it just goes to show what a different time it was when the movie came out that because, you know, a white person didn't murder a minority person that it's considered this, this landmark thing. So (laughs) I don't know. Yay, good job. Not doing a hate crime. Not performing a hate crime. What a hero. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just, it's, it's just very interesting because I do think that when you look at the life of John Wayne, you're looking at the, uh, the id, the uh, image of the United States in those early to mid 20th century periods of pop culture. And Now it just doesn't make sense. The fact that he was awarded the Medal of Freedom posthumously in 1980 by Jimmy Carter, that just doesn't line up. Jimmy Carter was the one who gave that medal. Yeah, that is... I read that on Wikipedia when you first started, and I gotta be honest, it really bummed me out. I would have guessed Reagan. I I would have guessed Reagan. 
And I was like, this has to be a Nixon pick. Or, yeah. But it just goes to it goes to show he was the image of America back then. And even people like Jimmy Carter looked up to him as this this figure that's amazing. And I just I don't understand it. But then again, it just goes to show that that I think that the theme of this episode is con men and grifters. And I think that in a way he's kind of that as well. He played this made up image that people took very seriously. So you're saying it's a Limbaugh. <laughs> how, how did you guess? How did you guess? I don't know. Just, I was getting a vibe. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, he passed away in 1979. Oh, so there was probably like an outpouring of like retrospectives about his life. That probably 100%. helped prompt Jimmy Carter to be like, oh, you know who just died? 100%. But I think that even when he did die in 79, he was still this beloved figure, though. I mean, I will say as somebody who grew up in a household of Irish-American immigrants, he was still a beloved figure, like up until I would say like maybe like 10 years ago when my grandfather died. Like it was The Quiet Man with Maureen O'Hara. John Wayne, he may be an American icon, but he is an Irish folk hero. Like, I mean, that's one of those movies. His real name is Marion Morrison, which is as Irish as it gets. That's actually George Santos's drag name. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Wonderful. It all it all comes together. Yeah. yeah, it all comes together. But they just absolutely rolled out the red carpet for this guy. And again, it was just like America forgot who the person was and confused the character of John Wayne with the actual person, Marion Morrison, Mm -hmm. when his footprints were laid at the, the Chinese uh, Grauman theater in Hollywood, the concrete was made with sand from the beaches of Iwo Jima. (gasps) Again, this is a person who uh, did not want to get drafted in world war II, yet at the time, he was considered a war hero by the time that that was done. Like, it just goes to show how much that image was distorted of I'm reality shook. to what he was. I'm yeah. shook. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it's like Donald Trump being considered a successful businessman. Do you think maybe that episode of I Love Lucy, where she tries to steal John Wayne's footprints from the Chinese theater, she was like doing it as like a like a protest. Oh. Like she was like, no, you shouldn't be honored like this. <laughs> I mean, Lucy was very progressive. It could be. I don't know. I don't know. Even some of the things that he would do that that just show this hyper-masculine, insecure, you know, we are always right type of thing is, is during the Vietnam War, he made a movie called The Green Berets, which is the only pro-Vietnam War movie. Oh. I hadn't it's, thought about that. No. This is a good idea. Like the Vietnam War is is correct, and we should Everybody we should loves, stay in it the yeah. entire time. We're all super proud of that one. Yeah, it was notable because uh, when Roger Ebert published his review, they thought there was a typo because there wasn't a star rating there. And Roger Ebert said, "No, I'm giving this zero stars." So that's why you don't see any stars lined up. Clay, when you say the only pro Vietnam War movie, are you forgetting about the Deer Hunter? <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like that's a little bit too inside baseball for our our it's listeners, not a Brian. Film podcast. But I do highly recommend <laughs> the Deer Hunter just for uh, just a class act Christopher Walken performance. But if anybody wants a huge bummer of a film, uh, the Deer Hunter, check it out. As another part of the holography to John Wayne in 1972, at the NFL draft, the Atlanta Falcons drafted him despite John Wayne being 64 years old at the time. Come on. Guys. Everyone needed to get a grip. He did that. He openly supported the House of Un-American Activities Committee, a.k.a. the McCarthy hearings, and would actually rat out people that he suspected of being communists and ruin a bunch of of actors and writers careers even people that had nothing to do with communism he was just so in support of of that entire system that was there 
after he died, just to show the prevalence of his image, just off Marcy Avenue in Williamsburg is the John Wayne Elementary School. What? Which, uh, when you think of that area off the Marcy stop, isn't necessarily somewhere that I would think of that would worship John Wayne. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. So to repeat the mission statement of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, it's there to recognize people who made, quote, an especially emeritus contribution to the security or national interests of the United States, world peace, cultural or other significant public or private endeavors. Mm. I do think he undoubtedly was influential. I just wonder if that's the type of image that we're proud of in the United States. I don't think that he was someone who preached hate outwardly like Rush Limbaugh did, but I also don't know if he's someone who we should be erecting a nine foot statue to like they have at the John Wayne airport in Orange County. (laughs) I agree. No arguments here. On his hundredth birthday in 2007, there were all of the celebrations for John Wayne, but something actually heroic happened in real life that same year at the John Wayne Elementary School for one of the construction workers. On January 2nd, 2007, John Wayne Elementary School construction and maintenance person Wesley Autry was at a subway platform with his two young daughters in Harlem when a film student had a seizure and fell on the tracks. Wesley Autry wanted to make sure that his daughters were okay, and then while a subway train was coming, jumped on top of the person that was having the seizure and ducked on top of him to make sure he was okay. In between the tracks as the subway car went over him, it was so close that the top of his knit cap was covered in grease from the train going over him after the fact and saved the person's life and was a hero for someone who had real-life bravery and and actually did the right thing. Uh, He was honored at the State of the Union Address by President George W. Bush, and uh, just someone who I think that is an actual hero and should be someone who is considered for his actions as opposed to playing a part. And so I wanted to to mention John Wayne Mm -hmm. Elementary School's most famous worker. Maybe when they rename the school, they can rename it after him. Because I feel like it's only a matter of time before we change the airport name. Mm -hmm. And I feel like once we get that rock rolling, we can change the school's name. I think that's a great idea, Brian. Yeah. I agree. Wesley Autry actually uh, retired last year and had a uh, nice little thing happen to him in uh, December of last year. He won the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes and won a new car. Oh, my God. Wesley Autry. Yeah, that's that's the uh, definition of good karma right there. What a mensch. So we're at the end of this. First question, do we think that he deserves the medal? No. My no. opinion, no. <laughs> no. Uh, Glad we're in agreement, guys. <laughs> I do think that it is. We always talk about how these picks are a reflection of American culture at the time. And I think that this in is that a, a dictionary definition of that, of how prevalent white supremacy was in the 20th century. Agreed, unfortunately. So who would this person be today? Clint Eastwood. That's a really good answer. I think that's it. That is a really good answer. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. I don't know if I, okay. Yeah. Guys, this is my lane. You want to talk about movie stars? <laughs> Don't come on my podcast and talk about movie stars. Well, I th- it really is. It's, it's someone who <laughs> has no interest in their actual art form. They're there to show an image of America. Uh, conservative politics as well. Yeah. I'll never forget him talking to that empty chair, man. Oh, <laughs> iconic. I mean, full clown behavior. <laughs> that was that was a wild year. Yeah, 2016. He is, I do, just kind of taking it back to it and giving some speculation. You know, John Wayne died at the age of 72. If Clint Eastwood died when he was 72, I bet we would probably look at him more fondly than, you know, he is now. 
old man yells at Cher. But then he wouldn't have gotten the windfall of releasing Million Dollar Baby the same year that Terry Schiavo died and wouldn't have won all those Oscars. <laughs> that is a throwback. <laughs> yeah. Never forget, that happened the same year. Mm-hmm. Wow. It was a big year for life support narratives. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. John Wayne, everyone. 1980 medal recipient. They're not always going to be good people, folks. Nope. Sometimes it's good to, to talk about the bad ones as well. I hear you. All right. I'm glad we did this. When we come back, our medals of the week. medals of the week a person animal group sometimes an inanimate object uh that has distinguished themselves in the last week ish since we last recorded clay do you want to start us off sure mine is with uh, i guess we would call it retiring new zealand prime minister jacinda ardent oh yeah there's this image of public figures who stay in it to the end and Arden became Prime Minister of New Zealand in 2017. She was one of the youngest heads of state ever. And just think of all the things that have happened in the world and also specifically in New Zealand in the years of her term from 2017 to 2023. Uh, The Christchurch mass shooting happened, the obviously the COVID pandemic and everything else with that. And She also was the second head of a country ever to give birth during their term. Uh, Whoa. Also, the first one was uh, the late Benazir Bhutto from Pakistan. And just the type of work that she did and everything that was there, and she was honest with herself and said, okay, I'm not saying that I'm retired now, but I do want to step away because I've had a lot happen both in the nation and, and with me personally. She led her nation through the labor party for those years. And uh, I don't know. I just, I think that she was a a breath of fresh air in the world stage, Mm -hmm. just with her youth and her honesty with everything. Uh, Just like uh, similar to the Obama administration, her term wasn't perfect, but that image and the energy that she brought to the world stage, I think should be uh, really recognized. And uh, yeah, I'm giving her my medal. I agree. I think that's a great choice. Solid pick. Enjoy your semi-retirement, Jacinda. I'm sure she'll be back. (laughs) Bigger and better than ever. Brian, what do you think? I'm also going to give my medal of the week to a woman who is iconic, bold, just really out there leading the pack. Mm. And that's Nepo Baby and star of the biggest movie in the world, Allison Williams. Oh my God, I was going to do Allison <laughs> Williams. <gasps> um, so then I think we should duet on this, and it can be the first Medal of the Week presented with distinction. Oh my God. I started. Um, wow. For, those of for you, Allison Williams. Yeah. I mean, we're giving a Nepo baby a with distinction. When you do the work, Clay, you deserve to be rewarded. <laughs> All right. So. I guess I'll start us off with chronologically the more distant thing that impressed me about Allison lately, which was New York Magazine had a cover story about Nepo babies about a month ago, which was just a deep dive on both like, who are the Nepo babies? What does being a Nepo baby entail? Kind of like breaking it all down. And so pretty much anyone with a famous parent who was doing any kind of public event um in the aftermath of that article was getting asked about it and you guys a lot of the nepo babies were showing their asses they were being defensive they were not having a sense of humor about it yada yada and our queen allison williams was like yeah so my dad was famous and that helped me get famous and so that makes it harder to root for me because i'm not an underdog and like that's what it is and she and i'm pretty sure she point blank said I would not be Mm -hmm. where I am if I were not Brian Williams' daughter. She said that. 
Which is crazy because she she's did. beautiful. Like even <laughs> like if her dad was a non-famous handsome man, she would still have that face. And I think she probably could have mm-hmm. gotten somewhere in Hollywood. But yeah, it was just it was she really stood out like her and Tracy Ellis Ross. I think are the two Nepo babies who are just like, yeah, I'm famous because my parent is famous. But, you know, I'm here and I'm going to do cool stuff and let's just see what happens. Tracy Ellis Ross is really cool as I well. Love so, her. all right, you have a yes. point. Here. All right, so Brian, what else? What else has our our friend Allison done to impress you? Well, obviously, in hindsight, with the level of clarity that time has given <sighs> us, we can see that Allison Williams was doing the work and was giving the best performance on HBO's acclaimed series Girls, mm. and that's just Marnie is the character that you think of and reference the most. But then, not only did she give us that, not only did she give us Get Out, Mm. you know I can't give you the keys, babe. But on January 6th, we're reclaiming the day. We're taking it from those insurrection people. We received the film of the year, M. Thregan, (laughs) a.k.a. Megan. And (laughs) Allison Williams was giving us everything on the press tour. Mm. She is a scream queen for a new generation and she has not stopped. She made a cameo on Saturday Night Live when they did a skit about essentially parodying the eventual Megan sequel. And she also was on the Drew Barrymore show today and inspired Drew Barrymore to conduct the interview dressed as Megan. <laughs> and in case all of that wasn't enough, she also presented the Academy Award nominations this morning with Academy Award winner Riz Ahmed. And it was the first time I've ever watched the Academy Award nominations and didn't want to put a gun in my mouth by the time they got to the 14th (laughs) category. And you want to know why? It's because she had natural charisma and looked beautiful wearing a dress that vaguely looked like a Snuggie. And for that reason, (laughs) she is our first medal of the week with distinction. Allison. Allison Williams, thank you for all that you have done. You are shaping this nation into a nation that I am proud to call home. Exactly. She also hasn't posted on Instagram in three years. <laughs> that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Power move of the century. <laughs> she just stopped. She was like, I gave you get out and I'm done with Instagram. I'm famous enough. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. The thing that I enjoy the most, I am thinking of a AV Club article with the headline, the movie Megan boldly asks, remember when things were fun? Yes. I had and it's true. a blast watching that movie. Yeah. Low stakes. It wasn't <laughs> some comic book movie where, oh my God, the world's going to... It was just fun. It was It dumb. knew it was fun, and we got to have fun. And that's a missing part in America in 2023, and I love it. When she comforts that girl singing that David Guetta Sia song about being titanium? I mean, come on. No one is making movies like that. Here's the thing right. about Megan is it's <laughs> dumb, but it's clever. Like, the things that are actually happening in the movie are so stupid. Like, it's... It's really dumb. If someone just described it to you, you'd be like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But it's like tons of fun to watch. The way the movie's made is just like, it's clever is the best way I can explain it. And so it just hits this. Clever, but also is said, we're here to have fun. Oh, they know that it's not We're not here to impress you with how clever we are. But like, I just feel like it was snappy. I don't know. There was just something about the production that felt like you didn't watch... You didn't feel like you were watching a B movie, but it had the heart of a B movie. Like it was just, it was it was a blast. And I know that Megan M. Freakin <laughs> did most of the heavy lifting in that movie, but she had like to thread the needle because she had to be she had to feel like a real person experiencing real things, but also had to like act against a doll for most of the movie. And I don't know that that's easy. I'm not saying she's like you know, a master thespian, but like, I don't think that's something any actress would either a be willing to do or be like actually pull off convincingly. And Alison Williams f***ing sold it. She did. Yep. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. It's like, I feel like you're saying the movie is stupid. I think the crux of the movie, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Megan, I don't know what to do for you. Um, I feel bad for you. <laughs> where she essentially realizes at the end, it's like a commentary on parenthood. She like looks at Megan and says, 
I taught you the wrong things. I didn't do right by you. Like she takes ownership of that. And I mean, like it was a thing where when it happens in the movie, it was delivered with such sincerity. And I think that if it was not, if it was not performed correctly, I'm not saying that Austin Williams is the only person who can do this. Um, she's not like Meryl Streep, but I do think that the way that she delivered that line and that message made the movie, as you're saying, like, like, a new, I, I mean, obviously I've already outed myself as a magazine lover. I steal them from waiting rooms, but like New York Psycho. magazine used to have, I think they still do have an approval matrix oh, where yes. it's like lowbrow, highbrow, despicable brilliant i mean this is lowbrow and brilliant yes exactly Mm. (laughs) that is exactly what it is can we do some uh can we do a little game here stunt casting for the sequel oh i'm gonna start i'm gonna give you two names you tell me which character each of these people would play in the sequel okay first one brian and i are big fans west side stories rachel ziegler (laughs) who's tweeted about the film. I think that, that she's one of us. Uh-huh. Which role would Rachel Ziegler, Maria from 2021's West Side Story, who would she play in the sequel? She plays a tech executive who gets wind of the programming and makes her own Megan doll. Oh, the one that the guy was sending the files to. Mm-hmm. I love it. And the fact that she's like a little too young to be doing it, I feel like would work in the... Like, they could make that work in the story. I'm cheating because, I mean, it's not going to happen now because she's been nominated for an Oscar. But that's the role I wanted Hung Chow to play in the sequel. (laughs) But I'm willing to give it to Rachel Zegler. Okay. Next person. (laughs) All right, good. I think she would kill it. Uh, Second person, and we can add to more of this if you have any other ideas. She deserves no introduction. Jessica Chastain. Oh, my God. Clay, you are such a Chastainiac. I am a Chastainiac. Who would she play in the sequel? The curator of a toy museum or maybe even the Smithsonian Institute who gets killed by Megan. (laughs) Like opening credit. Like, I mean, truly like Drew Barrymore in Scream. Yeah. Like it's just, it's like her at a doll museum and Annabelle's there, Chucky's there and she gets killed by Megan. (laughs) A cold open cameo. I like it. She would do it. I like it. She would do it. Oh yes, she would. Call me. (laughs) I'm Tech Avail. (laughs) <laughs> wow see guys we're having this much much fun just talking about a movie that doesn't even exist yet this is how fun megan is do you guys have any other ideas for stunt casting no. not john wayne i'll tell you that much <laughs> john wayne's corpse how about that yeah yeah <laughs> we use his embalmed corpse as the new uh, megan <laughs> and we give it like a titanium exoskeleton <laughs> I am Titanium. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, that was the delight. So I think that's it for us, guys. We'll see you next time. Don't forget to follow us at Limbaugh Podcast on Twitter, but also maybe on Mastodon if Twitter falls apart. Always good to have a backup. The situation is always evolving, yeah. so just keep that in mind. Yeah. And um, if there's a M Threegan, there should be an M Fourgan. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Till next time. This was a fun show. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>